This podcast is brought to you by Gridiron Heroics Media. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Welcome, one and all, to the Gridiron Heroics Football Show. I'm Max Dean. You can find me on Twitter at TheMaxDean. And today is our draft episode, which means we're going to talk a little bit of news. And then we're going to jump right into the rookie performances from this week, as well as the 2023 prospects that we can expect to see in the upcoming draft. Before anything, though, I always have Julius Lux with me to talk about some news. How are you doing, Julius? All is well in my end. Cannot complain. How about yourself? Doing well. You hanging in there with the with the Yankees? How how are we doing? Um, right now the game's been postponed. I don't know when because it's supposed to rain up here, and I don't know why they'd give them the day off yesterday when they knew it was green today. But you know, TV time, all that. So <laughs> they got to fit it in the right schedules and stuff. So right now, that's yeah, I'm stressing about that. But other than that, you know, I, I can't. That's why. Complain. That's just that's just the usual. Football's the best sport because you can play it in any conditions. That's very true. All right, so. All right, let me find this uh, transition here somewhere. There she is. All right. Going to tell us about the news as soon as I play this awesome sound drop. All right, we're getting right into it. Devontae Adams has been charged with a misdemeanor assault for shoving the media worker after Monday's loss to Kansas City. The man suffered, according to reports, a whiplash, headaches, and possibly a minor concussion. A court date is set for Thursday, November 10th. Yeah. Um, this is so dumb. I mean, it's it's a heat of the moment thing. It really is. I get it. I get it. But, like, you've got to keep your composure. I mean, I'd, I don't want to overstate it, but the reality is, a guy like Devontae Adams, a big, powerful NFL athlete, just shoving an unsuspecting guy who looked like he was probably in his 50s or so. It's like it's if you're if he's not ready for it, it's kind of like just an adult just shoving a little kid like hard. You know what I mean? Like like it's there is it's I don't know if he if he got hurt. I, I mean, it's it's all allegedly at this point. But but the reality is is dangerous either way. And I'll, tr- I'll try not to criticize him too hard because I know it's emotional, but it's like, you can't, like, if you were at your workplace and you just shoved somebody because you were pissed, like, you would probably be fired pretty quick. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah. it's something that, that apparently we kind of allow in the NFL because it's a physical sport, but still, like, you can't, you can't do that to the people who are, are not a part of that. Yeah, especially how that game ended where him and Renfro collided into each other. It was definitely one of the most frustrating losses and endings you'll see, and that you can imagine. I don't think I've ever seen an ending like that in terms of players running into each other for running a route, and that happens. And I guarantee you, I feel like if Adams wasn't, like, A, a key component to the team, B, a starter, and, like, a guy that doesn't get any playing time if that happened, I guarantee you, he's probably cut. Yeah, yeah, I think I so. I think his status really helps him. Yeah, 
yeah, like that was that was messed up, honestly. Tell me you play for the Raiders, like without telling me you play for the Raiders, because they <laughs> oh, have no. stories all the time. Oh. And this just had to add right into it. All right. All right, All right, what else you got? <laughs> Moving on. So Aaron Rodgers set out of practice due to his throwing thumb bothering him. He suffered this comforting issue. In his final hit he took in their loss to the Giants, Matt LaFleur says there should be no concern for any missing time, so he should be good to go for their next game. Well, maybe maybe it would be good if it, if it hinders him a little bit because he's playing the Jets this week. So. Mm. <laughs> If, uh, if it's just a little harder for him to grip the football, I wouldn't be upset for one week. But uh, uh, I will say that, you know, traveling in an airplane, the pressurized cabin is not really good for any inflammation, which I think is one of the reasons that James Winston um, traveled with them and then just didn't practice at all when he went over there. It's not really the ideal situation for a player who's trying to recover from something. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if this happened during I didn't watch the game because I didn't get up for that game. I was I, I only saw the ending, but I walked out during the engine. I don't know if he like got up and kind of was shaking it off or anything, but I'm I'm sure he'll be all good to go. So fingers crossed that the Jets are able to pull this one off and they can suffer back to back losses to New York teams. That would be kind of kind of be kind of satisfying for me as well. I won't lie. <laughs> okay yeah hey look and we know we haven't talked about it there's a lot of good new york football now that you're up there maybe you are the secret charm to uh the jets and the giants actually being pretty good i i really hope so i'd love to see i mean more more the jets than the giants being my team is in the giants division but i would love to see the jets succeed it's been it's been a real rough rough time like half my life maybe even more <laughs> moving on though to the ravens david ajabu and tyus bowser returned to practice on wednesday both have been recovering from torn achilles ajabu was a second round pick for the ravens in 2022 his draft stock fell because of the injury he will he will not play this week of course but he's back on the field practicing that's soon that's really soon because mm-hmm. he only suffered that injury it was in the draft process. Like I'm pretty sure the college season had already ended and he was training for the NFL draft. So that's really soon to be practicing again. It's only early October. So, wow, that'd be pretty crazy. Um, But it'll be good to have him back. I mean, Jason Pierre-Paul has been a nice little boost to their pass rush, but the more the merrier, you know, you want to get that rotation Mm -hmm. going. So if these guys are back in time for the playoffs, that'd be big. Yeah, I think that would be a huge, huge boost to them, especially if he pans out and returns back to form. I know a torn Achilles is probably the most difficult injury to get back to your top performance level. Speaking from watching basketball and seeing many basketball players not get up to that that peak that they were at, mm-hmm. football is probably the same because, you know, the physicality is incredible. Yeah, especially for the edge rushers who are exploding, you know, mm-hmm. forward. There's a lot of torque on there. Um, explosiveness uh, on their Achilles acceleration all sorts of scientific physical things but moving (laughs) on to Dallas Dak Prescott is getting closer to returning to playing but the team is still preparing for Cooper Rush's start against their divisional matchup against the Eagles Prescott participated in light throwing drills and we'll see how he feels moving forward but as of right now he is inactive still but Cooper Rush expected to start yeah, well, the, the the Cowboys are a lot higher on my power rankings than some people would expect. And it's it's kind of 
partly due to the way they're playing, partly due to the expectation that Dak Prescott is going to be back sooner rather than later. I don't think that they should rush it. I think when you have a big game like the Eagles on Sunday night football, I think you just got to kind of trust what's been winning you games so far. Because if you try and put Prescott in there, you you don't want him to try and force it against against a division rival. You know what I mean? Because a win here would put them in first place for the division. And as, and as enticing as that sounds, I think it's better to just play the long game because you're playing such good football in general right now. Yeah, you also got a big matchup against a team that is undefeated. And this could be a solid matchup for the division winner, especially because Dallas is one game behind. A win here can tie for first place. And you like how the defense is holding down the fort right now. They're holding opponents pretty low in terms of scoring. And the offense is doing just enough to, you know, squeak by and win some. Yeah. And Cooper Rush is amazing. Dominant defense, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Cooper Rush is amazing. No, I had to throw that out there. But moving on down south, Dolphins QB Tua Tungavailoa has returned to the field to throw following his concussion protocols. He also did some individual drills. He is obviously not going to be active as of right now, but he's back to throwing the football. Uh, that's good. That's definitely a good sign. Um, they're definitely going to slow play this. This is tough for them. This is so tough because they went from they went from winning that game against the Bills, being in control of the division, to losing two straight, now falling into third place in the division, and and probably going to be without their quarterback again for this this coming week. I think Teddy Bridgewater is expected not to play either, so we're going to see Skylar Thompson out there again. It. it it can be real tough to go from 3-0 and to 3-3 and quick. I think Bridgewater also returned to the field. I thought I saw something this morning when I was on the treadmill at the gym. I did see his name pop up, and I saw that he got back on the field as well. It, of course, is unsure of his status. But, yeah, when your two quarterbacks do go down, 3-0 and can go to 3-3 three and three and possibly in very quick. Mm-hmm. But moving on to some good news, we got our – our players of the week. So we got to give a shout out to these guys, Josh Allen, AFC offensive player of the week, 424 passing yards four touchdowns, incredible game for him and their blowout win against Pittsburgh. Taysom Hill, NFC offensive player of the week. He had an incredible game, uh, becomes the third player in NFL history to at least have a hundred rushing yards, three rushing touchdowns and a passing touchdown. So that was pretty neat. On the defense, Michael Parsons in the NFC, five tackles, three quarterback hits, two sacks, one forced fumble. Matt Judon, AFC defense, two sacks, three tackles, three quarterback hits, a forced fumble. And for the special teams, I bet you can guess this one for the AFC, Chase McLaughlin, of course. None other than going four for four in all field goals and the only source of Colts scoring in that Thursday night game. And Cameron Dicker, NFC special teams, replaced Jake Elliott, kicked the game-winning field goal to keep the undefeated season alive in Philadelphia. All right. Nice. Congratulations to everybody. I mean, that Taysom Hill game was pretty wild. I mean, that was a really I, good game. Yeah, it really, really was. was Offensively wise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll see what he can do. I know Matthew Brown's really high on him from fantasy perspective, but we'll see if he can be this kind of impact player week after week after week. But uh, all right. Is that it for us today, Julius? That is all. I do have a question. I'm just curious. 
if Taysom okay. Hill, if Taysom Hill, he's labeled a tight end. Mm-hmm. If I pick him up because I got Hawkinson on by, would his mm-hmm. quarterback, would his quarterback numbers count in the tight end spot? I believe yes, but I, mm. <laughs> definitely tempting. the touchdown. Definitely the touchdown, and they put okay. him in 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 basically exclusively like red zone and short yardage situations. So I wouldn't expect you to miss out on many yards, even if that was the case. But gotcha. I had to ask. Yeah. I figured you'd you'd have an idea. So because I've been yeah. thinking, because I've I'm looking at Noah Fanner or Hill. So. Oh no, go get Taysom Hill if he's still available. <laughs> if nobody's picked him up, go get him. Stat like, sounds I don't know. good. Because he's just like he might not have a lot of yards, but he may walk away with twenty points just off touchdowns again. So beautiful, sounds good. All right, okay, Julius, thanks so much. Let everybody know where they can find you. So you can find me on Twitter at gotjuice44. Gotjuice44 on Twitter. You can find me on gridironheroics.com. Just search up my name. And you can find everything there, as well as on Facebook, Julius Lux. Beautiful. All right, we will see you again tomorrow. Sounds good. See ya. With the third pick in the 2019 NFL Draft, the New York Jets select. Oh, listen, thank you. All right, we are back with Nick Miriam, our lead draft analyst here at Gridiron Heroics, to talk about some 2022 rookies. And it's a good year for rookies. I think there's a lot of guys contributing to the NFL this year, and. I'm excited, obviously, because a lot of them are on my favorite team. But there, there are quite a few around the league. Um, we're going to talk about a couple of teams who are getting major contributions, and then a couple of specific players. Before that, uh, excuse me, after that, then we are going to talk to Owen as well about the prospects in the upcoming draft. But today, it's all about guys who are already pros. Nick, how are you doing today? Doing well. Uh, I got a little little sleep last night, so that's nice. Um, <laughs> hopefully, I can get. Watch some of these games today and um, about to go on a little vacation, which I think is much deserved. <laughs> nice, nice, very nice. It's my son's birthday today, so after this, I'm going to do a little more work before he wakes up and then uh, and then probably go do some fun four-year-old stuff, which, you know, it's almost like a vacation in a way. <laughs> All right. Um, so... Got a couple of teams we want to touch on first just because they're getting so many contributions from their young players. First one is the Seattle Seahawks. So, I mean, a team that that just took an incredible amount of offseason. I don't even know what the word is. I mean, they just took media L after media L. I mean, everybody was criticizing them for the trade of Russell Wilson, and they don't know what they're doing anymore. Turns out they got... A pretty nice haul given the circumstances. It's it's still early in that in that trade to see like really what finally comes of it. But the early return looks pretty solid. Now, although they did still have one pick in their first round to the Jets, they were able to get a first round player who's contributing notably. They were able to get um, an edge player, a corner, a right tackle, a left tackle. I mean, th- they've got a bunch of guys who are basically full-time starters at this point. And, and, you know, I think Geno Smith playing well is a big part of it, but they are competitive in all of these games. And I think one more off season, you can really see this team being turned around. So what are your thoughts on some of these guys that are playing for them? So this is why you trade Russell Wilson. The situation you're in is your roster is not very talented. 
you have a quarterback who's really good, but in the system you've built for him, you're not really getting anywhere other than you're kind of hoping that you can make the playoffs and he goes on a tear in, in January and you somehow win the Super Bowl because of him alone. And as we've seen in the past, like, you know, Russ might play really well in September when you need him to play real well in January. And it just doesn't really, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work. So I think I was personally for the Russ trade from Seattle side. A lot of people didn't love it, but I thought they needed to kind of sell off and, and get some pieces and just reset a little bit. And they really did a nice job in this draft. Like I was a big fan of it outside of the Kenneth Walker pick, which I just think Pete Carroll values the running back position really highly. But even then, you know, now, you know, Rashad Penny just broke his leg this week and Walker stepped in and was very solid. And he's had a few weeks to develop. They're going to have a running back they can rely on in this, in this offense that is continuously just put up points week after week. Uh, defensively, they had some issues, but it's just worth noting, like, how many rookies they have starting on that side of the ball. And that some of their best players already are these rookies. They did a really, really good job of doubling down on the valuable positions in this draft. So you you, you mentioned how they got tackles, offensive ends, and, and corners. Well, both the corners they took, Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant, are starting and playing pretty much full rotations with Bryant in the slot, Woolen on the outside. And Woolen has stepped in, and he's a physical freak, and I didn't love his tape at UTSA. Uh, but I had, you know, like an early fourth round grade on him, which is, I think, even earlier than him. Yeah, he went in the fifth round. So he's a guy who just the athleticism has transferred immediately and he fits their system really well. And when you kind of have him on this cover three island in a third of the field and you can just let him be an athlete in that space, it works. And you've seen it already. The guy has four or five interceptions already um, and has been the playmaker that defense needs because they don't have much else. Um and then in terms of edge, you know, Boya Mafe, they took in the second round, another developmental athletic guy. They haven't really been the type of team that takes these athletes. And I think they kind of changed their tune this year. And Mafe's not playing the full rotation. They have Daryl Taylor and him like kind of flipping uh, the other side, Uchenna Nwosu and uh, number 48, whose name eludes me. Um, it's somebody who's who's not you know, a fantastic NFL player, but he's, he's in the NFL. So he's good, but, but he's not like you know, a starter. Um, <laughs> right. And Mafe has been, um, he's been good. Like, he's, he's been solid. And, you know, a lot of these edge players, you kind of, especially day two, you just want to see some flashes early in their first year because day two edge players are not generally expected to be like these game changers, but Mafe definitely has that upside. And because they're getting him on the field, he's going to be able to develop. And then we're not even talking about yet the fact that they have two tackles playing at a pretty high level for year one in Abraham Lucas and Charles Cross. And in a run-heavy offense, which has not been as run-heavy because of how well Geno Smith has played, these were two guys that came from the Mike Leach air raid system at some point in their careers and were used to pass protection and have mostly held up. Charles Cross is my OT1 this year. I was a big Charles Cross fan um, and thought that was an extremely safe pick from their standpoint. Um, and beyond that, they just were very aggressive in acquiring talent that could day one either give them something or long term give them a lot of something, you know, because there are just so many freak athletes on this board and they're immediately seeing kind of the the uh, the award of just going for it, especially at valuable positions. Lucas and Cross should be their tackles for a while. I think they've both more than held up to their jobs at this point in the season. You know, we're a month in and I think they both look like they belong. Uh, and and quite frankly, like I don't think you ever see teams acquire two tackles in a draft. Like that is out of this world, like crazy. They are going to get two tackles, probably a corner, a running back, maybe also an edge in another corner. 
So it's kind of funny. Like the Seattle team had a stretch of just getting nothing from drafts for about a decade after two of the best drafts we've ever seen. And I think there's like potential for this draft to be another just bonkers draft class. It just kind of breaks the, the algorithm of what you can get out of a single draft. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it has to do with when you go into a draft and you've had success, you, you talk yourself into specific positions. You talk yourself into specific needs. And sometimes drafts just don't offer you your specific need as the most impactful player. I think when you take a step back and you trade your starting quarterback for a bunch of picks, you're basically recognizing that you need a lot, right? And so they were able to go in and just start taking the best players available. Like, do you think they would have taken Sauce Gardner if he was available? Yeah, I don't think they were married to the idea of a tackle in the first round. Do do you, I think that they would have taken any other position? Do I think they would have taken an edge rusher in the first round? Potentially, yeah. But I think that they just were patient. They just let the best player that they felt was there fall to them. And they, that consistently happened throughout the course of the, of, of the draft. And you have to give them a lot of credit for how they handled this one. And, you know, you just hope that they don't step back into the trying to fill needs role because they're still not quite there, clearly. It's great that they found a quarterback who's playing well for them now. It's great that they hit on all these guys. But, but uh, I think one more year of this, and they can really put themselves in a good position for years to come. Yeah. And you make a good point about maybe not filling needs is the key for them here, because maybe Russell Wilson covered up a lot of their deficiencies as a roster. Um, and this is the year that they finally realized that and getting rid of him was kind of their admission that, all right, we just need to really try and reset at our important positions. Cause they had drafted edge players and they just really like Daryl Taylor is probably the best guy they've drafted. And mm-hmm. they've just, there was a kid from TCU whose name I can't remember who just hasn't done anything. Um, there's another guy they took in the second round who hasn't done much. And Daryl mm-hmm. Taylor was kind of an out of the left field pick itself, you know, that, that, you know, he's contributed a little bit, but I don't think he's like an all-star player by any stretch. So um, they needed to kind of broaden their strategy. I think just going for guys who are either known commodities or athletes at positions that, that value they're valued in today's NFL was the key for them just to get where they are in this draft. Yeah, I don't know why I can't remember his name either. I feel like this that era of of Seahawks football is already kind of over, you know. I mean, that yeah. But LJ anyway, Collier. that's it. That's it. I was literally just about to look it up. I was like, I, why can't I remember what his name is? Maybe I just because I haven't had coffee, coffee yet today. That, that stuff, that powers me. <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I, I think, you know, we did see um, Kenneth Walker have a big run and obviously the picks for Tariq Woolen, the fact that Geno Smith is comfortable in the pocket. I mean, that tells you all you need to know. Like, if, if you got a quarterback who doesn't trust his one of his tackles, like that shows up clearly on tape. And, all right. Props to them. We're going to talk about one more team here who we've touched on before a couple of times, but it just seems like week after week after week, the contributions just keep growing from their rookie class. The New York Jets, they had a pick and a forced safety from their first pick, Sauce Gardner. They had almost 200 total yards from scrimmage from um, from Brees Hall, who looks like a an absolute playmaker and then you know the other guys that they have had contributions from are still playing well if not as much of a featured role I think some of these guys is going to take 
a little time before they're week after week after week impact players. But, you know, we've seen enough of them that we've got to give them some credit here. Yeah, um, without getting into too much detail, because we've talked about all these guys, the Jets is really the last two years, I think, have done a good job of drafting. And I think it's an under-discussed talking point with the draft is that teams should not trust their own evaluations of players too much. Um, and this is why Kansas City was kind of lauded for their draft this year, is they just stuck to the consensus board. If you have a player you really like, you want to take him to the top 20, and the NFL sees him as like, a 65th-ish player and you take him at 20 like and he ends up being great like fine like you did you did it you got your guy but you could have had him in the second round you know and I think the ability for these teams each of the last two teams we just talked about now in Kansas City looking at their boards identifying players they like but really just kind of sticking to to what the consensus was because I think almost every player the Jets drafted where they drafted each of this year and last year was either a value or around where like they should have been taken on a consensus board. Even if you're not in love with those players, the majority of people believing a guy is one thing usually ends up being correct. It's, it's not a perfect science, but I mean, it's like, this is maybe not the best analogy, but it's like why we believe in democracy in the United States. Like it's just, we have, enough opinions on a player and generally like the draft process is very linear. Like there's not a lot of different types of grading players. Most teams use the same scale. So at some point, like players end up having the same view from the league almost everywhere. Now quarterbacks, I think wildly differentiate. I think corners do a little bit too, but even then, People knew Sauce Gardner was like at the very least a top 15 pick, right? So if you like him a little bit more and you take him top five, okay, that's that's sure. We can deal with that. Uh, Garrett Wilson, like at the very least, someone thinks he's a top 10 or top 15 player and maybe top 10, and they did that and that works, right? Jermaine Johnson, I think, was a player that almost everyone had pegged as a first-round type. You get him at 26, which, you know, I don't know if the league – as a whole viewed him as a guy that went that low, but I think more than likely teams just at that point in the draft weren't drafting edge players. And this guy slides to that pick. Uh, mm-hmm. Brees Hall, that's about where running backs go. He's about as good of a running back prospect as I've seen in the past four years. So that makes sense in itself. There's not a pick on this board that I look at and think, even from like a structural standpoint of where positionally that player was taken in my like what I mean by that is like cornerback two, wide receiver three, like that type of thing. Mm-hmm. It makes sense on the board. There's no linebacker at the third pick. There's no running back at the 13th pick. There's no, you know, wasting a third round pick on a quarterback, which is not really something that we're big fans of either, because generally those guys don't end up being starters. This is sticking to the consensus, identifying players that people believe at the very least have something, even if you don't fully believe in them. Um, and then if they end up hitting on two of these picks, you feel good about it. And it looks like they've probably hit on more than, more than two, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think with them, it, it, what's so exciting about it is you can look at the Seahawks draft and you've got a bunch of contributors, guys playing pretty well, guys where you could foresee them playing well in the near future. With this Jets class, I mean, these guys are straight up winning them games. I mean, you've had just uh, Garrett Wilson take over in the fourth quarter against uh, the Browns. You had Brees Hall with his performance yesterday. 
you know, you've had, um, you had Sauce Gardner with his performance today, and he's basically been locked down against number one receiver after number one receiver. So it's like these, it this this class could be in the ilk of those couple of classes that the Seahawks had that literally powered their team for you know about eight total years of, of just dominant from dominant to very good play, and so I think. I'm I'm very excited about what I'm seeing here, and I just I just want to go back again to Brees Hall and what he can do in the passing game that was basically just non-existent at Iowa State, and he just looks so comfortable out there, just catching a pass in stride and taking it to the house almost, you know, tackled at the one yard line, and he he has a patient running style. He doesn't really attack the line necessarily, but he's got the explosiveness that he can kind of work with that effectively um you know i think patience can be good or bad for a running back depending on what the rest of their skill set is and it's just we're we're seeing we're seeing it all come come into play and i know the jets are feeling good right now they have to go play the packers so we'll see if you know this all this holds up against a much more veteran team with a lot more of an established credential but i mean it's it's pretty cool, and I guess since you know we sometimes talk about guys who are in their second year solidifying themselves too. I mean Zach Wilson, we touched on, but how about Elijah Tucker and what he's done? Their other first round pick from twenty twenty one, playing. We I mean we've talked about it on the podcast already, so we don't have to go through it deeply. But I think if we're talking about draft, sometimes there it's there's hidden value in a player like a guard who you wouldn't necessarily peg as being a high value position but if he can step in and legitimately play tackle for you or basically any position on the line there's a lot more value in that yeah i mean i'm still a fan of christian darisol a little bit more but at that point the jets were not drafting a left tackle so it makes sense uh where they went and vera tucker has we're gonna talk about this later versatility is a big part of the offensive line grading system in the nfl you can't get a certain grade if you can't play multiple positions. Um, and Vera Tucker's ability to play more than two, even he can play three, but he can play five positions by itself makes him a more valuable position player than, than just the fact that he's also good at football, which helps as well. Um, but they've really, I mean, you know, that's another valuable position they've taken of a guy that even if you trade up for him, that's around where on the board teams had him. Elijah Moore, again, another player that I think some people had like late first round grades on and you get him kind of early second. Um, and I, and then again, I, I think we talked about this last week, you built the roster really well, but the key is taking your shot at a QB when you get it. And they did, uh, they could have listened to the fan base and gone Panay Sewell at two um, and stuck with Sam Darnold and they would not be where they are right now. So um, I think that is a huge, is going to be a huge part of their success if they continue to win. All right, so let's touch on a couple of individual players. Chris Olave for the Saints has been excellent. I've been loving watching him play. I mean, he's one of his one of the, his knocks was that he wasn't necessarily as physical of a player, but I've I've almost seen him do that when necessary. You know, at Ohio State, a lot of these guys are so open that it, it's not necessary per se. But with the Saints, he's been aggressive at the catch point. I mean, he caught a touchdown, a very physical touchdown last week and then this week he caught one and managed to hold on to the ball even though his head was slammed into the turf and 
he has a concussion now, so we, it might be a little while until we get to see him back out there. But, you know, his route running, his hands, his just veteran awareness of what he's doing out there and what's happening around him has been pretty impressive. I had said going to last year's draft that Garrett Wilson was one of the highest floor wide receivers I'd ever scouted. If it wasn't him, and it probably it looks like it wasn't, Chris Olave was either a close second or is actually the highest floor receiver because he just he doesn't do anything poorly. Like I don't know what is the most flashy part of his game other than that his timing um, and spatial awareness are excellent. He's got pretty good hands, but he's and he's a he's a good athlete. Like he can run. Um, but other than like the comparison that was made, I have a friend, friend who's a big Ohio State fan is that he was similar to Terry McLaurin coming out. And I think, honestly, he has a better skill set for today's NFL than McLaurin. McLaurin's a little bigger and more physical, and Olave's got a little more of that over-the-top ability in terms of speed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just it was, it was very hard to see him not producing at the NFL level, regardless of the situation. And I think New Orleans is actually not, not a bad situation, considering they have other pass catchers. Um, the quarterback situation's a little iffy, but they, they, you know, offensively they do some nice things. I'm not surprised at all to see him producing the way he is. And I think he might end up being their, their most productive receiver if he can get back healthy from that concussion, because he just, there, there isn't a thing you can ask him to do on the field that he can't do. Yeah. I think, you know, when you're talking about lowest floor or I mean, the highest floor, I think one of the reasons that that conversation was in Garrett Wilson's favor is because you can be the greatest wide receiver ever from a route running perspective and from a getting open perspective. And as important as that is, if you don't have a great quarterback, like if he's not hitting you when you're open, DBs have time to recover from that. I think with Garrett Wilson, you saw maybe slightly less refined route running, but almost all there. And then he also has all the run after catch. So if you don't have a great quarterback situation, you can formulate him a lot of stuff and just let him go out there and, and do it. You know, you can let him do some of that Brandon Ayuk, C.D. Lamb stuff. So I think from a floor perspective, that's that's why I envisioned him being a little bit more like day one safe because you just don't know what route running in, in college is exactly going to look like when it gets to the NFL, if they're going to be, you know, knocked off the line a little bit more by stronger dbs and stuff like that and you know with the like press coverage more so i I think you know it's not i I agree that he has a high floor but i think if you're look if you step back and you look at what they were offering pre-draft i think that's probably the argument yeah i mean that's probably why we came to that conclusion but i i also think it's important to note that like the Saints are have some talent. Like that's a good football team, and he's probably landed in the best situation of any of these receivers, quite frankly. So that's that's definitely helping as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, he doesn't have to be the number one guy, even if he does become that pretty quickly. All right, another receiver that we've got over here, Khalil Shakir, wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills. He wasn't seeing as much time early because they had a pretty deep receiver room. Obviously, they got Diggs and. Uh, and um, oh, what's his name on the other, on the outside? Definitely need King coffee. Davis. Davis, yeah. And then in on the inside, they have McKenzie and Crowder. Crowder got hurt, so that's giving Davis and or uh, Shakir an opportunity. And he's looking real good so far. What thoughts do you have on him? So this is a guy that I had thirty fourth on my board, and he fell to like the fifth round. Um, 
week one, Isaiah McKenzie, I don't remember if he dropped the ball or made some play out of the catch that I was like, they love Isaiah McKenzie. And I think as a gadget player, he's like fine, but I didn't really understand him starting week one in the slot, especially when you have, in my opinion, two like pretty good slot players behind him and Jamison Crowder and, and Khalil Shakir. And we saw both of them produce in preseason. Eventually Crowder ended up becoming the starter. He gets hurt. Um, and now they're giving Shakir some playing time and immediately here he's producing. Um, and not only is he producing, I think he showed more as a deep threat than I was expecting from him early mm-hmm. on. He kind of had a little bit of like this possession deep threat game to him in college, but most of his game was kind of your classic slot, get open quick with a little more physicality than most of these slot players. You see, this is a guy who, despite being, you know, kind of a thicker build was returning punts for Boise state. Um, he's just a physical after the catch player sneakily has like a good a good step and can, can make some guys miss but it's kind of a combination of those two things he runs kind of like a running back after the catch despite not being maybe like a devil samuel sized receiver um, but early on here in buffalo you're seeing him kind of fit more into that josh allen just sling it offense which mm-hmm. i was not expecting um and i'd like to see them get him more involved in like short touches because i think those are going to be some free yards for them but if he is immediately producing this offense as kind of like a full-on downfield slot player uh i think he can really turn it up here and that receiving core could be disgustingly good by the end of the year yeah there were a lot of khalil shakir fans prior to the draft Uh, i think none more than nate tice i know he absolutely loved khalil shakir Uh, i think you know you see right away what his ball skills are because like like i'm trying to remember exactly how the play went but he had a, a big downfield catch that was I think contested too. So, I mean, it, it's not, it's everything you said. It's, it's his ability to catch the ball underneath and make guys miss. It's his ability to get deep, but it's also, it's his ability to fight for balls deep, which is something that you don't always get from, from slot receivers. Like if, if they could get over the top, great, but if they have to come back for it, how do they handle that? You know what I mean? And I think that he's, kind of early on showed that he can do some of that too. So it gives you some more confidence throwing it deep to him because you know that at the very worst, maybe he can break it up and help avoid some of those big defensive plays. So I'm looking at his targets right now. I was looking at that jump ball. I think another thing I had in my notes is that he can jump out of the gym. Like this guy, he's he's six foot. He's not like the tallest receiver you'll see in the world, but his ball skills are good because he just so often in college would just get up. And that's what mm-hmm. happened on that first catch. There's a nice out route where he just catches the ball five yards upfield, turns the corner on the on the defensive back, and uses his speed to get upfield. He's just a very well-rounded player, um, and it kind of surprises me that he fell to where he did. Just like it has to be like a Boise State thing, like oh, he's not a power five because you know if you view Boise State as a power five school, which I think quite frankly, like we shouldn't really separate them so much from all these other schools that we scout other than maybe the SEC. He just had a lot of the things you look for in a wide receiver prospect. Like I don't know where his real limitations were other than like 40 time, which in my opinion for him was like a bad measurement because I think he plays faster than that 40 time represented. Yeah. Well, I think maybe some of it you can uh, attribute to overthinking and some of it you can just attribute to how deep the wide receiver class was. I mean, yeah. you realize Chris Olave was what the – I guess he was the third wide receiver taken, but then, you know what I mean, like – you're still getting, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe we should be criticizing the Packers for not looking at a guy like him over Christian Watson. But at the same time, if you're, if you're looking for those ridiculous traits that you want to develop, 
It, it's a preference thing. I, I think you could make the argument for him to be taking over some of these guys, but it's also when you start to go down the list and you're like, okay, then this guy went and okay, now Sky Moore went. It's like, okay, you kind of start realizing. Um, yeah. Fifth round, probably a little far, but I will but say you definitely see Bay's, how he dropped. In Green Bay's case, they don't draft small receivers. Like they, If he's not 6'2 or taller, they won't draft him, um, which I think is a limitation of their scouting department. But, you know. Is, these is it a limitation? Is it of their scouting department is. or of their personnel department? Because I mean, I, the scouts yeah, aren't necessarily the one yeah. making that rule. You're right. You're right. It might be the personnel. I, it's, I mean, I guess you could say there might be a translation in terms of the height and the way Rodgers plays. I, I don't I don't know how they view it, but I just know that Belichick came into the league, had like very strict um, limitations on height, weight, size type stuff, and then everyone copied him. And I think he's even lessened that as the years have gone. I mean, drafted like a five-seven corner this year of the slot, and I think other teams aren't Belichick have kind of stuck with it, um, mm-hmm. and that's why we're kind of where we are with some of this. So, some well, of what this, about like, Randall Cobb? Limits. I mean, Randall Cobb's not six-two, right? And he's yeah, that's the one. Maybe their most the productive one, receiver this year. That's the one outlier, right? You know, um, but other than him, like you can go back and look at the receivers they've taken in recent drafts. They don't draft short receivers and i mm-hmm. even like randall cobb like that was that might have been the regime before the current one that it was a while oh, it ago. was for sure it was but i mean we can go down the list i might pull it up right now who they've drafted a receiver this is like completely off topic but i mean watson and romeo <laughs> dobbs are both six two guys amari rogers is shorter so that that was one um they didn't take one the year before that didn't take one the year before that jamon moore was a taller six three receiver that they took in the fourth round. Um, put me all the way at the bottom of these drafts when I took it out of it. Um, Mark has well, maybe one of the reasons scholar. that yeah, maybe one of the reasons that they didn't draft him is because they felt like they already had that role kind of filled with Amari Rogers. It's possible. Maybe I mean, maybe that was the same with Randall Cobb, but I just I don't know. I'm not a fan of the like. I think you take the best player. I don't know and just figure it out from there, but. You know, it's not the biggest limitation. I think more of a problem is the fact that they just don't value that position that high. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Last player that we're going to touch on right now is Braxton Jones. This is a guy that you specifically wanted to bring up. So what what made you want to talk about Braxton Jones today? Yeah, so this was a guy out of Utah State who – not Utah State. What was it? Utah – Utah something. It's an FCS school. Southern Utah, Thunderbirds. Right. Who could forget? <laughs> um, he had really interesting tape. It's just the level of play he was going up against was not very good. And there were reps on his tape that looked like Trent Williams. There were also reps on his tape where you're like, oh, that guy's not ready. Like he probably needs a couple of years on the bench. But because of it's kind of like the Tyler Smith thing, but to a lesser extent, because of what you saw that was good, there's was a possibility that if he had real coaching, which I'm not certain this guy's had to this point in his career, considering he played lower level FCS um, against not great competition. I don't know where he went to high school, but I would assume, you know, not the biggest program in the world. We can look that up actually. I probably will while I'm talking here, but yeah, with real Murray, coaching Murray in Utah, not necessarily, not, not a program that I'm aware yeah. of by name. Yeah. Not a program I'm aware of. So, you know, there's a chance for these guys kind of like the Josh Allen effect that you get him into the NFL, you start him immediately, you tweak a couple things with this game and he just works. Um, and I would probably count playing really well in his fifth week as working 
pretty much off the bat for a guy like this. Uh, the Bears were desperate for some something to work at tackle position on the offensive line. Um, and this guy, I think, struggled early on. And at least to this point, as a run blocker, you're seeing the upside in terms of his athleticism. Pass blocking, I think we, we still need to make a couple tweaks. He's a little, his technique's a little off. But physically, he is NFL ready. Um, and I think this is potentially a big steal for them and a guy who can long-term be their left tackle. Yeah, it's impressive to find a player in the fifth round who can actually be potentially a long-term tackle because one of the things about that position is like if you've got the requisite athleticism to do it, you're pushed up boards a lot of the time just because the guys with the size, strength, athleticism, balance, they're just genuinely hard to find. It's probably the rarest overall physical build for, for any position. Um, I think guard, it's it's easier to find guys who have the requisite athleticism. Defensive linemen, I don't know if they're less rare, but I think if you have that athleticism at that size, you generally lean towards playing defensive line, so there's a little bit more of that available. So I just think it's really hard to find guys of this size and and, and ability this late in the draft. So that's big, big props to them. I'm, I mean, how do you feel about the build of, of tackles versus other positions. It's just like, I think, you know well, what I mean? Up. It can make up for a lot. I mean, this is, he's, his big thing is he had a seven foot wingspan, which is just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and that alone, like there are a lot of edge rushers at the NFL level who just went off of length. So if mm-hmm. you can keep your feet underneath you and learn to use that length as a tackle, you're going to be ahead of a lot of guys. Cause I think you see a lot of, technical marvels at the college level who get taken in the third round or maybe not the best athletes, but have the production get to the NFL still technically look pretty good. And then they go up against a guy like Greg Rousseau, who's just physically not what they're going up against in college. And they just can't stick at least mm-hmm. on a 60 down a game basis. Mm-hmm. And this guy is just, he's so far ahead in terms of that. His 40 time was a sub five second 40, which is, you know, Again, like I don't like hanging my hat on that, but that's like a pretty good sign if you're a, if you're a f- offensive lineman. If you can move like that, you're going to be able to use this guy in space. You know, it's just some guys rise to the, to the level of play they're up against, and that's the worry for a guy like this. Is you're like, oh, maybe he got used to where he was playing in college, but if he's like able to just play against anyone, and it doesn't matter who he's up against, and he's going to you know hold his own no matter what's going on, whether it's you know you know preschoolers or NFL players you're going to have a good one. And I think that's why it kind of felt weird to have him on the board where he was, but that's also why there were concerns. And it looks like we've gotten an early answer as we've expected that this guy can stick and he's just, I don't want to say NFL ready, but he's clearly an NFL athlete. And that counts for a lot at this point in this, in this league where it's just, everyone is just peak athlete. Yeah, if you could be confident with him going in to next year as your left tackle, that's a huge need filled for a rebuilding team. I think talking about length for offensive tackles and sometimes how that I can just help you off the bat. I mean, you look at a guy like Mackay Becton last year, or the year before, I guess now, and he was very dominant in the run game due to physicality, the way that he could get out in space and take on you know, defenders at basically from basically any position. But the questions really were, 
how is he going to be in pass protection coming into the NFL? And I think that first rookie year where he showed so much promise, a lot of that was just straight up due to length. He was just able to get his hands on you before you could get your hands on him. And were they perfect pass pro reps? No, but they were functional. You know what I mean? And kind of expecting that development to happen now. It hasn't because he hasn't played, but but I think sometimes that goes a real long way to just kind of cushion your fall into the NFL. Yep. And it's why you keep drafting offensive linemen if you're the Jets, because you put yourself in a situation where you have depth now, despite the fact that Becton is not on the field. All right. That's going to do it for us today with the rookies. We will back. We will be back momentarily with the, uh, the um, 2023 prospects with Owen as well. All right. I am still laughing at myself every time I put one of these transitions in. We are back with Nick, of course, and Owen McCuller to talk about some college prospects. Now, we highlighted a few last week. We got to see how they performed. Well, at least some of them. So we have some comments on that. And then we have some more guys to look forward to this upcoming week. Remember, Nick and Owen put out an article every uh, every week at the end of the week to basically preview some of these matchups, and then they recap them as well. So look for those on gridironheroics.com. Owen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Uh, a little later than our normal recording setup, but I think uh, I'm just as sharp right now and ready to talk about some football. Nah, I, I hope so. If so, you're sharper than me because <laughs> I, I don't know if I can hang with the young guys anymore. All right. First one we want to comment on, we talked about last week, Clark Phillips, a corner from Utah. Now, Nick, this is a guy that you were really high on. Um, you liked him a lot. And so what were your thoughts on this week's matchup for Clark? So I will say I have not fully dived into Clark Phillips's tape. I did a big data dive in. Um, as a sports info solutions employee, I have access to some some information on him and has been looking at that. Watch some film. Uh, I have a friend who actually has been on this show, uh, Max Chadwick, uh, who does the college football updates, uh, is a big fan of Clark Phillips. Might be his cornerback one. BFF is fans of him. And the last couple of weeks, I may I think we brought up on the last show. He had three interceptions two weeks ago. A pick the week before. Utah had shifted from heavy zone a couple of years prior to heavy man. And this guy is playing man coverage, both slot and outside, and he has versatility. He's played well in zone, and he's now playing really well in man as well. And it's interesting because his style of play kind of switched from a safer zone coverage, a guy who would just kind of rally and make tackles, a guy who would you know, read quarterback's eyes and, and shift between different zone coverages, to now playing extremely aggressive and jumping all sorts of routes and picking off a bunch of passes. And so previewing the UCLA game this week, uh, UCLA is a team that obviously UCLA won that game against Utah 42-32. They have an explosive offense. It's Chip Kelly. They run a lot of RPOs. It's run heavy, hurry up type stuff, right? They want the ball out quick. They want to be able to set it up quick so they can run another play. Uh, the run game gashed Utah. They couldn't deal with that. But in terms of the passing game, I think Clark Phillips held up pretty well. Um, they played him in the slot most of the time. He did give up a touchdown to Jake Bobo. It was kind of a... You know, it was a quick slant route. He was about 10 yards off the ball, and it was just it was tough. Like, you know, it was a good play call. Uh, the, the game plan for the game for Utah was to have their corners play off and rally up to these short routes so they can make tackles. And my prediction for the game was, hey, 
a lot of quick cutting routes, lots of curls, lots of out routes, lots of RPO type stuff, bubbles, stuff like that. Clark Phillips probably going to get another interception, maybe another big game changing play. And just so has it, this guy gets a pick six. Now it was 42 25 when they got the pick six with less than a minute to go. So it wasn't really a game changing play, but it's a big play. So I'm going to count that as a big <laughs> win for me. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, look, sometimes when it comes to college and the translation to the NFL, you have to do your best to ignore what's happening around the player because obviously situations are important. But at the same time, sometimes the best prospects are just on the worst teams. And I'm not saying that Utah is the worst team, but it's just an example of, you know, trying to to pick one player's performance out of everything else that's happening. So, all right. Another big time prospect we've got here, Peter Skaronsky, the left tackle from Northwestern. Now, Northwestern's been putting out some prospects, notably that they they did have Rayshon Slater uh, just two drafts ago. So, Owen and how are we looking at this guy at this point after his performance? Do we feel like he's he's in that top tackle conversation still? Yeah, I've seen a lot of people. He was a he was a high end prospect, especially towards the tackle one uh, conversation when the season before the season started. But as it came into the season, people got more and more to his tape. They realized he's a little more of uh, that athletically. He's not as athletically gifted as most left tackle prospects you're going to see for the NFL, and despite him being really good technically sound and having good head on his shoulders, being able to pick up blitz and stunts and things like that, always being in position to block who needs to block and make sure that they're always protected on that blind side. People are starting to now drop him down big boards for position uh, value and things like that and knocking him out of the tackle one uh, debate because I think he's going to be more of a guard type prospect. And this week we highlighted him in the article uh, because he was going against Wisconsin's defense who consistently puts out some high-end talent and gets guys who are in the draft every year. And they have another guy who I'm pretty high on, Nick, Nick Herbig, who is a pass rusher. And they definitely met a couple times in this game uh, with Skronsky getting most of the wins there. But despite him having a solid game and Northwestern itself not having a good game for themselves and they got blown out like 35 to 7, 42 to 7, somewhere in that range, uh, Skronsky still showed up and was still one of the better, uh, the best players on the field for them. Uh, despite his great game, you could still see that lack of athleticism and stuff where he was a little more, his hands got all all out of place when he was asked to take some really deep kick step drops uh, to cover these guys and sometimes give up his chest when he was asked to get more vertical. Now, when he was going upfield and he was working laterally, he was looking like the prospect I saw before the season started where he was looking as a top offensive line prospect. And maybe if you can get him in a system where you have like RPO steps or more lateral pass uh, drops or something like that, you might be able to still play him at left tackle. But I can definitely see where people are seeing that if you want to maximize his potential, you have to move him inside to guard at the next level. The NFL highly values versatility at the offensive line position. So it's going to be interesting if the media sinks him because they think he's a guard. I don't know if the NFL will. They might. I don't know. I, I think he'd be better as a guard. But I also think if you're drafting offensive linemen at that point, and he's a guy who I think is going to be one of the first off the board, if you need a tackle, he's going to be a tackle because the same stuff was said about Sean Slater. Like build-wise, um, he was probably a little bit bigger and probably a better athlete than Skaronsky, but – Build-wise, people thought a lot of people thought he was a guard first. I mean, obviously that backfired because he's one of the best left tackles in football already. Um, and I think you see a lot of the same things from Slater that you see from in Skaronsky's tape. For example, the elite awareness that kind of comes from playing some guard and then moving out to tackle. Um, 
he's he's a guy that has answered the call early this year um, and should hear his name isn't called day one. Like, I think he's we'll talk about this later, like one of the few guys who I'm, I'm pretty confident in going forwards in this draft process. Interesting. Tackle is always one that I get into later than most. I mean, I think that's probably the case for a lot of people, but you just unless you're sitting there actually watching offensive line, you have absolutely no concept of what that player is or does. I'm not saying you get a good idea with skilled players, but you know, there's some stuff that you can pick on, pick up on much, much more quickly. So I'm interested to get into his tape, especially because my Jets, they they have some versatility at the offensive line, but they have been injured beyond belief. So they may be going back to that offensive line well early this coming year. So all right, one player who we highlighted who ended up not playing Owen, your guy Will Levis ended up in a walking boot. So what's up with that? Do we have any idea? So, yeah, I had written it up and had uh, highlighted him in the article because he was going in and going to be going against South Carolina defense that I personally thought had the best corner in the draft with Cam Smith. So I was excited to see how he would do against that pass defense. About 15, 20 minutes or so before the game, he's on the sideline with a walking boot, and they're starting their backup redshirt freshman quarterback who in his first ever start. And the game went accordingly, and they lost. Uh, I'm fairly certain. <laughs> uh, and now this week they're facing Mississippi State. Uh, I did just read – uh, CBS article while we are getting the prep set up that they think that he is going to play because uh, Levis was a full participant in Tuesday and Wednesday practice. Now, to the extent of how banged up he's going to be while he's playing, I know the line is like Kentucky plus eight right now uh, for that game against Mississippi State. So I'm not sure if they're if they're anticipating him playing and that's why the line is so low for them or if they're just thinking that the injury is going to keep him, uh, hold him back from really performing. I, I think one of Levis's biggest uh, – Threats is him as a uh, is him as a runner, especially because how big he is. He can definitely show up that athleticism, and I'm not too worried about his you know arm velocity and things without without having a proper base underneath him. But without having that threat of him taking off or him being able to extend plays behind an offensive line that did lose a lot of talent since last season, uh, I think he's probably going to be in a little bit of rough shape uh, statistic wise and probably going to lose this game if I had to be uh, predictive just because of how banged up his ankle is and how much of that takes away from his actual game when, uh, if he does play. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense, but we are all eager to see him get back out there and show off what he can do because, again, it's a it's a good quarterback class. There's a lot of variety in terms of what kind of players you're looking at here. So I think the more tape, the better for a guy who, you know, maybe has a legitimate chance to be quarterback one. So uh, let's look forward. So a few guys that we were highlighting this week that we haven't talked about I think we've talked about some of them before, but not necessarily just this past week. But Michael Mayer, tight end from Notre Dame. Big-time prospect. We talked about him last week only in that he is in the Draft Network's top 10, but we did not specifically talk about him on our show. Nick, what are your thoughts on Michael Mayer? Yep, so just coming off of a work meeting where we basically broke down Michael Mayer's tape, watched a few games not, not with with these guys, uh, not with Grant Rooks, my different job. But uh, so this is new information for them. I just want to put that out because it might have sounded like we watched them together. But Michael Mayer's, I, yeah, really do. <laughs> I don't know that I had time for it. Um, <laughs> but Michael Mayer is a guy that I think a lot of people have highlighted as tight end one in this draft class. I had talked about Eric Gilbert earlier this year. This is, that's not happening clearly. Uh, we'll have to wait another year for that. Uh, it's year three of me typing him up, but <laughs> mayor has been solid. I mean, he's what we expected him to be. 
the issue I have with him right now is I think the idea that he's a top 10 prospect in this draft, probably not in most drafts. Definitely not. He's he's, he needs development. Like he's not refined right now. Um, and he's not the type of athlete like a Kyle Pitts that gets taken at that point in the draft, quite frankly. And I, I do think that he's probably above the Pat Fryer moves of the world, but I think he's more in that realm than kind of the game changing tight ends that we're, we're hoping to see come out. And just going over his film, like two of the main things that come off for me is as a blocker, he's willing, but he's just as an athlete, not ready to be a contributor day one of the NFL. This is a guy who I think struggles with pad level. He leaves his feet behind him a lot. He, he's the type of guy who has the savviness, has kind of this veteran mentality where you see it a lot in his, his ability to get separation in the pass game. Like he's not quick or faster than everyone else, but he's big enough. He's got really good hands. He can be physical at the catch point. He has kind of really a smart idea of how to use kind of that trail hand in coverage where he can kind of use that arm to leverage space. Um, and also is just really has great awareness of space to get open, but he, he just looks a little awkward. Like it's, it's hard to describe, but it's like a guy that, that has the physical ability um, and knows what he needs to do, but his body won't quite do what he wants to do yet. So you see like in everything he does, he leans into it. He lunges when he blocks, when he runs, he's like leaning forward a lot. You know, there's a thing they teach in terms of track. If you want to accelerate faster, you want your foot to come down as far in front of you as you can and kind of smack the ground as far away from you in front as you can. And this guy's drive of his run is like behind him, you know? So he's just, it's not that he's an unrefined football player. It's that he's an unrefined athlete. And so there's a lot of untapped potential there, but at the moment it's hard to say whether he really fits as a Y in line tight end because as a blocker, he's not really getting a whole lot of push. He's getting in the way, but he's not, the type of blocker that, that, you know, uses leverage and kind of dr leg drive to get guys off the ball. So he's probably going to start as an H back in the NFL. Um, and then beyond that, the development curve is going to be interesting based on where he lands. Cause if you're in a Shanahan system, if you're with the Ravens or if you're with, you know, I don't know, the commanders who run, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the Coriel offense, it's going to be different depending on where you end up. And I think because of that, they're going to be wildly different takes on where this guy ends up on teams boards. Because even in our discussions, like some people had this guy as, yeah, I think day one, he's an H back starter for you. And some people were like, I don't know. I think he's a backup and he's going to be a backup year two. You know, our grading system is based on what you would call him day one of year two backup year two. And you're hoping year three, he develops into something. So I like my, I think I like Michael Mayer. I don't think it would be wrong to take that guy day one eventually um, in this draft, but I don't think top 10 is, is where he's going to end up at the end of the day. Yeah. He's just been, the whole thing with him was that he just burst on the scene as a freshman who was huge, massive. He, he had the size despite how young he was. And I think that's still kind of showing up in his game because he's someone who's super young and probably isn't super comfortable with the frame and size of his body as it is right now, which will get better as he ages. So this might be somebody who, if he was still, if he was a senior right now, he probably in like age 22 to age 21, he probably would be looked on as a better athlete overall because he does have the tools there. He has the size and he has the, the head to know, you know where I'm supposed to go, how am I supposed to use my frame? It's just that his body is kind of struggling, the lack behind him. And I think that's something that's going to come with him with age and with a more stricter NFL level uh, nutrition plan, things like that, that just lets him like really feel comfortable in his own body. Uh, when it, 
for the point you brought up about his blocking, uh, I know when I was doing a preseason look at Amari Gaynor, the linebacker out of Florida State, I was checking out his game against Notre Dame. And that was the biggest thing that hit me was like I had been hurt hearing all these things about how Meyer was this giant dude who was, you know, run, really being highlighted as one of these prototypical inline tight ends who brings that size and uh, athlete you want to have as a, you know, inline blocker. And the Gander was just able to manhandle him a lot in that game where he was just getting in the way. If he was getting a success, successful block, it was because he was driving off the ball. It was more like that Gander was just out of position. Whereas there was a lot of other plays where he was getting out leveraged and just thrown off the block despite being the larger athlete. Uh, so I think with time, if he, if he comes out this year, uh, which I do suggest he does because he has all the hype around him and getting to a point where this is his solely his job to be physically fit and get into these NFL weight rooms and have these professionals who are going to be watching every, every move of him, especially if he's a first round pick to make sure he is able to live up to that physical potential he does show. So I think he should, if he comes out, teams are going to have to know, okay, this is more of a project than a, uh, a done deal right now. Uh, and they'll have to do their due diligence with that, especially when it comes to like offseason workouts and things like that with the combine. So if people are really convinced that he's going to be like the next big thing, but he's more of a project than, say, a guy like Pitts was or TJ Hodgson looking back a few years ago, where those guys are more finished products. You knew what they were with, but they also had the higher ceiling, whereas this guy, it's a low floor, but the high ceiling as well, as opposed to having the higher floor. Such an inter- interesting conversation about tight ends in the draft, and it's 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 a little bit difficult to project tight ends because even the very good ones are not game changers, except for like two or maybe three, right? So it's like there are a lot of game changing wide receivers. There's even more game-changing running backs than than two or three. You know, there's more game-changing tackles, more game-changing corners, whatever, you know, even safeties. So when you're talking about positional value, you have to recognize that, yes, it's easier to find this kind of player than this kind of player. Yes, it's a lot more cost efficient to draft this kind of player versus this player. I mean, it's like taking an edge versus a guard. One might be very, very good. One might be slightly less good, but play a more impactful position, a more expensive position, so on and so forth. Tight end falls into this category where there are almost no game-changing players at the position. So the chances that you would get one, even if you draft him that high, are so low Plus, it's it's not cost effective at all. So this is one of those interesting positions to me where it's like I find it extremely difficult to justify drafting a player that high, even if you are absolutely awestruck with what he brings to the table. Kyle Pitts is kind of like that. Even for me, I was that's that was my opinion before the draft uh, in 2021 when he was coming out because. You see it this year a little bit too. Like he's he's just not getting the targets that justify a fourth overall pick. You know what I mean? He's he's just he's just not because if he's playing tight end full time, it, it's hard to get him that number of targets, right? You need that player who's in that position to block too often to to I think make that justification. I don't that's just my opinion because it's so rare. I mean, you're talking about Mark Andrews, you're talking about Kelsey and you're talking about Kittle when he's healthy and that's that's it 
and Gronk before that. It's not like there was this whole slew of guys before. So, I mean, we're going to talk about another player here in a minute, but I just I want a, a, a little summation of what you guys think about the tight end position and, and high draft pick being used on one of these guys, Nick. Yeah, I mean, so personally, I think Pitts, it's a product of what Atlanta's doing. I think, I don't want to completely blame Arthur Smith because I think they do a lot of nice things, but I I think that their usage of him is a little questionable. Um, I don't know why he's in line as much as he is. I think they should use him like a wide receiver. And they, they you know, the role that Drake London's playing fills that Corey Davis role in his offense. But the issue, you know, this is a problem we have with coaches it's like that, that don't succeed in this league. It's you have a system, you like your system, you, you use it over and over again, and you try to fit, you know, whatever pieces you have into those holes. Arthur Smith needs to adapt his system so that Kyle Pitts can be another big receiver opposite Drake London. You need to get that guy open on deep routes on play action because that's where he thrives. Um, and I think they've done a little bit of that, but it should be a bigger part of the offense than they have already. That's a whole other discussion, though. I'm getting off topic. Pitts is the type of tight end that's going to go high in drafts. If you want an impactful tight end, the easy ones to scout are going to be the guys that are effectively wide receivers because wide receivers are a position that it's not the most identifiable, but I think it's an easier position to scout than, say, corner or quarterback. Um, And it's an impactful position, so when guys go high, they generally – Kyle Pitts is effectively a wide receiver, like going forth in that draft. We knew he was going to be impactful. And I think to this point he has been, but quite frankly, Atlanta doesn't have the offensive pieces to really make it work. I mean, the quarterbacks, Marcus Mariota, the offensive line has played above their weight, but they're not great. And, you know, outside of Drake London and Cordero Patterson, there's not much there. Um, The other guys, Kelsey, Kittle, Gronk, Mark Andrews, are all different and that they're kind of those Y in lines. And what you've seen, and I had, we had people on our, our, our boomer bus who were high on like a guy like Tommy Tremble a couple of years back, who's a super athletic fullback type who was going to play Y in line when he got to the NFL. Those are the type of picks, kind of third round day two, where you're just betting on an athlete that can turn into those type of tight ends. George Kittle was a third rounder, like super athlete at Iowa, didn't produce, don't exactly know what he was going to be at the NFL level, but if he hits, you have a player that, unlike a running back position, if you hit on a tight end, is super impactful and is going to do more for your football team than you're going to end up paying them for. Now, I do think the market's going to start changing and reflect that. If Pitts ends up producing for Atlanta, he's going to get paid like a wide receiver. Um, so I think when tight ends get picked high, it's going to be because they are effectively wide receiver H-back types that you can expect to get 1,000-yard seasons consistently. So are we just talking about having – just big slot players like so i mean at what point are we going to stop calling them tight ends and just calling them big slots i don't know i mean this was a discussion we had that with with pitts is that you know wouldn't be wrong to just call him like a julio jones type right and honestly i think if he had come out and said i'm a wide receiver he might be producing more right now for atlanta because i think trying to use him as a tight end is, is not the best thing for him yeah. Well, I think there's a lot that goes into it. Owen, what are your thoughts? Oh, uh, I was just going to say real quick to tie back to Mayer is that even with these guys who we've seen now explode onto the league who are kind of these higher end, not like game changers that you've seen, but like like Hawkinson and some of these other guys who were drafted to be Y in line tight ends, 
who have worked out eventually, they usually take it. It's like one of the longest learning curves when it comes to any position because you have to both learn how to block and how to play at the NFL speed as a receiver. So with a guy like Mayer, it's it's hard to justify a top 10 pick for him because unlike Pitts, who was so adept and was basically just a souped-up wide receiver, Mayer has that uh, is kind of advertising himself as I'm going to be like the Y in-line blocking tight end where he's already having question marks on how well he's going to, he's adjusting and how well his, how long his learning curve is for the college game. Now you bring him into the NFL where the learning curve for an NFL tight end is already super long. So if you're going to bring him in as a first round pick, you have to bring him in knowing that you have to probably already have a tight end in place. You're going to have to probably play him as your backup or as like a move tight end where the ones who are like kind of off the line of scrimmage, who could be the motion guy and get that head start running, uh, running for the block. On, on motions and things like that. So I think he is got the talent and he's got the size. And he's got the prototypical everything you want for a tight end. But just because the tight end position is so hard to coach up and so hard of a learning curve as it is already, and with his learning curve already being set back with how him still growing into his body, I think that's going to prevent him from being a top 10 pick, unlike a guy like Pitts, who was seen as having, all right, he's basically wide receiver. If we can teach this guy – who has like 240, 230, if you can just teach him how to block a little bit, then you basically got a top-end wide receiver who can also throw some blocks inside the, uh, inside the line of scrimmage. Like Kelsey is mostly just a slot receiver who comes in and blocks on, occasionally on downs, which is where a lot of the pit stuff was talking about was like he's just a wide receiver who can come in and block for you on goal line situations if you really need to. So Mayer has a totally different kind of perspective as a player where he's trying to be that more prototypical guy. And that prototypical position is always going to have that longer learning curve than somebody who's seen as a receiving option first that needs to be taught how to block. Yeah, I think it just it's one of those things where you look at at, at all of the just fine tight ends in the league and they're putting up what, you know, anywhere from maybe five to seven hundred yards. Right. And the the rate of passing in this league it's like you you've got you know your your number one two and three if you're a solid offense all probably putting up more yards than that and a running back is putting up more yards than that so you know I mean maybe that's maybe that that's a little bit of a high bar but generally speaking he's what the fourth fifth offensive target in terms of like touches so you, I think to justify a high pick on a guy like that he has to be an incredible blocker a really impactful one or or he has to basically play wide receiver and then what's the point of pretending he's a tight end anyway that's just that's just my opinion because if you're gonna put him if you're gonna because you know just because he plays on the line doesn't even mean he has to stand next to the actual line uh, offensive line right like he can be he can basically be a split end too so i don't know i just i have weird feelings about the tight end and and like why it's still why why i don't know i i don't want to digress too deeply into this like i don't want to like fall into this conversation too far but i just think it's weird that teams are still like pretending that that a decent tight end is even remotely as valuable valuable as a very good blocker or a very good receiver i think you know you've got to be extremely good at one or like very good at both so i don't know it's just my personal opinion so if michael mayer is not that I don't think that we should be talking about him in that that level. So the last player here that we want to talk about is Xavier Hutchinson, the wide receiver from Iowa State. Owen, I know you had some thoughts on him, and then we'll get into a draft take that Nick has uh, loaded up for us to uh, 
to drop on us. Yeah, I'll try to be. I'll try to make this one real quick because we've talked about this type of archetype of a player before. Uh, last week we talked about At Perry from Wake Forest, who is six five, two hundred five. Xavier Hutchinson, six three, two hundred five. So he's about the same size, two a couple inches shorter. Uh, the difference between the two of them is Perry is more of that deceptively fast kind of tall receiver who is still can use that physicality to get open on underneath routes, especially when he's challenged at the stem of the route. But he's makes his you know he makes a big place. He's able to go on tape, and you'll get like five or six times a game where you'll take deep shots towards him. He's stacking corners that are much smaller than him, and he's able to get behind them with this speed. Hutchinson is different, whereas he like I said, he's six three, uh, two hundred five. He has that speed. You see some burst when he gets out of his uh, stance off the line of scrimmage, and especially when he's bursting out of his stem if he gets down to like a an option route kind of thing. But he's more of that in the middle, low to intermediate yardage kind of guy who they try to get the ball in his hands more often as a rack receiver uh, on screens and things like that, where unlike I I think in like maybe the two games I watched for him, like tonight, he got maybe one or two deep ball looks, and most of them were either out of bounds or not even, and that's only on the outside. They like to target him more up the seam in the slot. So he's one of those guys that brings you that burst and that speed despite being a taller receiver. Uh, but they don't like to ch- uh, test him downfield unless he's coming out of the slot and he's going over some like linebackers and things like that and is able to sit in those gaps in the zone. So he's kind of a guy that he has the bur- – like unlike other taller receivers who may be a little more stiff in the hips, he's able to do like those more option routes in and out um, with the slants. He's a little more snap – he's got more, a little more snap to his uh, his route tree and things like that. But he's not able to really show off. I don't know if it's because he it has a lack of doing it. I think he doesn't because in the game against Baylor, he did a really nice double move on the outside. was able to get behind the corner. Uh, it was just an underthrown ball that really prevented him from getting a touchdown. Uh, but like he shows on tape that he's able to be that big threat receiver. But I wasn't able to give him as much credit for that as I wanted to because Iowa State just refuses to use him as that kind of outside you know, field-stretching kind of wide receiver. I don't know if they don't trust their quarterback or if it's like that. I think this is the kind of guy that we're going to see come in. He's, we're going to see him as maybe a big slot type or more of a number two receiver ceiling. But if an NFL uh, team can get their hands on him and realize, okay, he's got more physical attributes, he's got more things he can bring to the table, he's already a pretty developed route runner, running a lot of double moves and more advanced STEM kind of uh, routes than most, most college people would. Like knock on DK Metcalf in the past was that he just ran slants and goes in college. This guy's running double moves. Uh, in out option option routes, some arrow routes, things like that. So he's already running the full expansive route tree. He has some untapped potential when it comes to athleticism, and he already has a little bit more of that uh, close area uh, quickness and agility that some of these taller uh, height weight speed receivers don't normally bring to their game. Yeah, you know, I, I, we talked about this last week. Nick and I did about Iowa State and how they're pretty comfortable in their identity being a run first team you know what I mean they really want to run the ball on you they're like even whether it's downfield passing or using the running backs in the pass game it's just not really what they do so I think you know one of the knocks on Brees Hall was that he's not really a receiving back um, by some people and and I think that you know there were teams that probably viewed Brees Hall as a high quality receiving option after a little bit of development so I would imagine that if Hutchinson is able to do that kind of stuff, his usage at Iowa State shouldn't hurt his draft stock too much. You know, with the amount of uh, the amount of background checks, that background research that that teams do on these guys, there will be a team that will recognize what he can do for them. I do believe that. All right, Nick, what you got for us? 
All right. So last year's draft, famously, um, maybe not the best draft, right? Whereas two years ago, we're probably talking about the Parsons, uh, the Jamar Chase, Pitts, all those quarterbacks, which maybe haven't quite worked out, but there's a lot of other good players, Slater, Sewell, as one of the best drafts, I think, at least in one in my lifetimes at this point, I think. Um, so let's call that draft a 10, and let's call last drafts, last year drafts a 1. Um, and then let's say in terms of talent level, the draft three years ago with Burrow and Chase Young and um, – uh, Antoine Winfield in it. Uh, I don't know why that's the name that came to my head, but he's a good player. Um, <laughs> Kristen Wirfs, all those tackles, Andrew Thomas. That, that mm. the draft's like a five, maybe a six. We'll give it a six, like a little closer to the top end. This year's draft, I was really thinking would be along the lines of kind of the more average, maybe better draft classes. And I was excited to see more players. But so far, the top end of this draft, it's not going too well. We're, we're having some struggles. Jackson Smith and Jigba. Hasn't played. Keishon Mute, not even featured in an LSU offense that has struggled. Uh, offensive line, we've had a couple guys emerge, but no one who's like a top, like Ika McQuanu, who just came out of nowhere and was like a top guy last year, or Christian Darisaw the year before that. Um, defensive line, Brian Brissy hasn't really played. Miles Murphy uh, produced, but like hasn't flashed the way I think some people have wanted him to. Um, Andre Carter, my guy from Army, everyone figured out that he was good and they've just been double teaming him all year and Army doesn't really adapt their scheme at all. So he's not producing. He still probably goes pretty high in this draft because people know he's good, but he's not going to produce well enough to go as high as I boldly predicted he might um, at the beginning of the year, unfortunately, uh, for me and all the viewers, of course. Um, who, who else? Receiver class hasn't gone great. Jordan Addison, we're talking about as wide receiver one. He was a guy that I didn't think would have a chance of that because of Smith and Jigba and, and Butte um, and Quentin Johnson, who finally had a good week this past week, but really hadn't done anything until then. It's been a rough go of it. It's not been great. The corners might be like the strength of the class now. And I don't even really love this corner class. I think Cam Smith's good. I like Clark Phillips, I guess. Uh, Garrett Williams at Syracuse is good, but like, I'm like, if I line up a board right now, I don't know how high Garrett Williams is going to be. I'm going to feel biased because he's from Syracuse, but he's probably going to end up being top 15 because I just, I don't know where the like the, the, the high floor prospects are right now. Because I think if I'm going to like guarantee first round picks, here are like my guarantees based on what I'm hearing in the league. I think the three quarterbacks we talk about, Levis, Stroud, and Young, probably go in the first round. Will Anderson, Jalen Carter, there's five. Beyond that, like, okay, Skaronsky probably, six. And then is the next guy Brian Brissy, who's just going to get drafted based on pedigree at this point, basically, in like one year when he's a freshman? Because that's where we're at. And I'm a little concerned about it because I don't want to go down this road again, but this draft might not be as good as I was hoping it was going to be. That's interesting. So, I mean, what about guys like other quarterbacks that might get pushed up just because like a DJ Ungalele is like, is he, are we looking at him as a top 10 guy just because of positional value or. I, I don't think he, I would take him that high. I mean, I think he's like a first round guy, but I, you know, he might go higher if there's not other players, but like that's a, there's a guy with pedigree who's produced a little bit this year. And, and something I've heard a couple of things that he's like, you know, not quite viewed as that type of player yet by the league. Um, now this is early in the process and we might learn of some guys who are just athletic freaks that'll shoot up the board, but that might be, it might be like a process draft where 20 of the first round picks that happened this April are guys that we do not know right now, you know, like Trayvon Walker types. It's just like, Oh, that guy came out of nowhere. Um, because 
quite frankly, like at this point in the season, I feel like at least 10 guys usually pop up and you're like, okay, that guy's balling. Like he is ready for the NFL. And I can't put a finger on it right now who those 10 would be so far in college, because quite frankly, the parody in college football right now has been greater than like same in the NFL. It's been greater than we've ever seen. Uh, But the issue with that is it kind of takes away from the dominant play of top prospects. Yeah, well, I guess go back and look at Bruce Feldman's freak list, freaks list, because that's who's going to elevate themselves to the top throughout the process. Oh, and do you yeah. have any thoughts on this? Do you have anybody that we haven't really mentioned that you're like, well, what about this guy? Is he's likely a top ten type of talent? Yeah, it's kind of weird because normally around this time of the year, I've been hitting on all the, all the top guys. I've been trying to watch everybody that come up on those like weekly mock drafts people do that when they go along with how the season's been going, how both seasons are progressing. And I've normally seen a lot of times where you, about this time of the year, you got your top 10 kind of solidified, maybe back towards the bottom, towards the, you know, the 20s, the late 20s, early 30s. People are getting kind of struggling. I'll go, okay, well, I'm just going to take a shot on this guy because this why or this because uh, of position of value or et cetera. I've never seen such an about face turn like handbrake. We need to stop. We need to change about who we have going here because obviously this this season has been kind of different than what we're doing. Some people are staying true, like, okay, well, even though they're struggling, like we have the top three quarterbacks, two of them have been hurt uh, in Le- uh, Levison's young. So not only are you dealing with injuries and with receivers, dealing with injuries at your top quarterbacks, this edge class was viewed as one of the better ones coming into this year. Uh, and I mean, obviously, Will Anderson has been phenomenal, but like Miles Murphy was seen as like this high upside guy that as soon as he starts producing, uh, we'll be able to put a floor on him because now he's going to be having that more thing. He's still just mostly just a high upside player that you're trying to draft, and hopefully he's there. So even him, I don't think that because people still talk about him being a top ten pick just because of that upside. I don't think he has established himself as like a top ten bona fide dude just because I don't think if he came in, he could be a three down starter that you want to get in the top ten of the NFL draft. Uh, I've seen some stuff with offensive tackles because I really I really do enjoy diving off the line because it's mostly under under. Uh, under talked about when it comes to like podcasts things like that Jalen Duncan from Maryland's one of my one of those guys who's shot up and it's really been uh put on notice for everybody else the running back class has kind of fallen off uh, I know we had a lot of hype with Bijan Robinson coming in and Sean Tucker and things like that now people are maybe even pushing Bijan out of the first round just because he's he hasn't been like this game-breaking phenomenal running back that everyone was projecting I don't know if that's because they're selling out against him when Texas plays or if he's just taking a step back. So all these guys we had coming into the preseason, like, oh, these are going to be stud this, stud that. Those guys are falling off. And then the typical wave of guys that we didn't get a lot of hype preseason that come in and try to fill those gaps when these, when the, you know, because this thing happens all the time where guys will hit up preseason don't actually perform to that standard. But usually we have these other storylines of, oh, X player and Y player are, you know, breakout candidates. and Aiden Hutchinson, literally Aiden Hutchinson. Right. Like- Joe Burrow, his draft year, he went from being like a mid-round quarterback to number one overall pick worthy. And it interrupted the John, Justin Herbert to attack of conversation for that draft this year we don't really have that there's no one who's breaking into that conversation despite some guys falling out of it yeah zach wilson was a guy and uh, this is slightly different because he didn't play the year before his draft but uh trey lance was was interesting because i think people didn't know how the teams were going to look at him but anyway yeah you're you're right there hasn't been anybody really going big. I am excited though for this running back class because I love a good running back class that is loaded with guys that can go in the second and third round. It adds a lot of juice to 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 day 2 of the draft. 
You know what I mean? Because a lot of times you you got all your top players who you can expect to per, to perform early in, in their career in the first round, and when you get to the second round, then you start taking guys like maybe it's a guard who might play early, maybe it's an edge rusher who's just situational on third down, but on day two you can often find a bunch of running backs who can if in a, in a good draft who can contribute early, and I think it just it makes that day a little bit more fun, and I feel like without digging too too deep into it that's what we're looking at this year for 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 the running back group but all right guys that's going to do it for us today got a good 40 minutes of prospect talk today so <laughs> so look and i know part of that is 100 me devolving into my tight end uh soapbox but uh, but we'll have plenty of time to talk about that stuff more we will be back next week with more rookie and prospect conversations nick let everybody know where they can find you till then Find me on Twitter at Nick with Sports. We'll have an article on Gridiron Heroics. Owen and I, again, previewing some more uh, rookie stuff from this week. We had our recap, of course, from last week. And we'll have a recap of the games that we preview from this week. So keep an eye out for that as well. Uh, please give Sports <laughs> Info Solutions and at uh, SIS underscore football a follow on Twitter as well. Uh, we create data, and it's, it's useful. <laughs> all right oh and what about you man how could people find you yeah just for any of the goldfish in the audience who didn't retain that yep go check out our articles on great heroics two every week uh talking about the college football stuff uh and you can c- catch me at uh at the weekly huddle on youtube twitter and instagram i'm starting up the uh the actual podcast side of it again with some of the guys i'm working with over at buff state football so <laughs> i'm gonna get that going again i'm hoping to get some more prospect uh videos soon uh, up on that channel so just keep an eye out for that Beautiful. And of course, you can find us on YouTube here now as well. All right, guys, we'll see you soon. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our draft episode this week. Remember, I'm Max Dean. You can find me on Twitter at TheMaxDean. And the Gridiron Heroics football show is available anywhere podcasts can be found. Now, it looks like this show is going to be coming out one day later than normal. So you're actually going to get a double dose and our picks episode will come out shortly after this same day Friday. So if you are following along, remember we are going to be back on Monday to recap all the games from Sunday with Kyron Samuels. Please like, follow, subscribe, rate, review, anything that you can where you like to listen to the show or watch the show is very much appreciated. Now we will actually be live streaming with Kyron on Monday to recap the week. So that's going to be 11 a.m. Eastern. We are kind of (laughs) flying through things and updating as we go. So appreciate you all very much, and we will see you very soon.